0: I went to England first on the 23rd of October, 1941. It was purely economic reasons to look for work. Unemployment was very bad in Cork at the time. You'd have to be 18 before you got a permit to go to England to work. But things were very, very bad. The dole was cut off. For people reaching 18 years of age, there was an option to to join the construction corps, and if my memory is correct, it was about uh, three and nine per week. I could join the army for five and six, five shillings and sixpence a week. I opted to go to England. Well, there was mass unemployment in Cork. As you know the war started in 1939 and by 1941 things were very very bad. Uh, food was rationed. There was a famous song about half ounce of tea per week. There was plenty of bread, plenty of butter, but the main thing was there was no work. I came from a large family and I felt that It was, well, more or less my duty to go out and um, seek work and to make a contribution to the home.
1: I was 21, had no prospects of any work after leaving CIE, after five years in CIE. Nothing was around. And then all of a sudden, my w- sisters who were in England came home on holiday, and they were telling me th- about the good work, the good things that was over there. And with that, I pegged around the house for a, for d- a couple of pounds to get me single ticket. And with three pounds in my pocket, I went out to Dunleary, got on a boat, and arrived in Hollyhead in the middle of the night. So that, w- that, w- that was an experience in itself, in a strange country. And then from Hollyhead straight down to Houston, which was seven hours' journey, to where the digs was that had a room for me, like you know. And uh, after that, I think I think we went to mass first, being a good Catholic at the time. But I remember having just a little lunch, and then out to Hyde Park for the first time, sitting in the park, saying to myself, well, "What the hell am I doing here now?"
2: my uh, understanding there was a lot that these people had a right to regret but in fact I found them uniformly positive both about what they had done with their lives and the opportunity which England had given them in order to make better lives for themselves. Um, Father Jerry Kevlahan who runs the Camden Irish Centre told me that even when Mary Robinson came to visit the centre official Ireland was not all that happy about that visit because it was highlighting a part of history which the shiny new Ireland really would rather forget. So given the official neglect, if you like, of these people and the fact that their needs were unconsidered both in this country and in their host country, while I feel that they have a lot to be bitter about if they chose to take that route, in fact they have chosen to be positive and they chose to make the best for themselves and for their families and are in, in the main very grateful for the opportunity which Britain offered them something which was denied them here in their homeland
0: When I first travelled to England there was a degree of anxiety in the sense Ireland was neutral and it was entering into a, a culture of wartime of which I had no experience at all. We didn't know what to expect, but everything was handled, handled in such a way you left Cork by train, went to Dublin, travelled from Dunleary to Holyhead, on the arrival at your destination you were met, taken to the camp on the site. And we in a day or two, if, if some friends of yours had arranged, you could go into private lodgings. And again, that was a change, meeting new people, uh, adjusting to the regime, a wartime regime. But by and large, it worked out uh, reasonably well. When you're young, you can adjust much faster than an older person. I worked in Bat City... In Corsham. I worked in Cornwall and I worked in Gloucester in the construction industry. I left, I went back home in around 1943, late 43, and decided to go back to England again. But this time to work in a factory where at least your stay would be reasonably permanent. Because in the construction industry during the war, you came under the control of the Minister for Labour. And as as they need workers from one site to another, you get 24 hours notice or 48 hours notice, get your bags packed and proceed to somewhere else. And I felt that was, uh, there was no stability in that. And I ended up uh, working in Dagenham, in a 4 border company. I was just 18, 18 and a half. Uh, it it wasn't pleasant. For example, you'd have a blackout, which is something new to us. In the summertime, it was all right. But you knew you were in a situation not of your liking, and you'd have to do the best you can. At times this was pleasant, other times it was unpleasant. And one of the worst... Unpleasant memories for me was the Blitz and Bath in 1942 for three days and three nights, or three nights actually. The bombs were rained down upon us, and Bath City at the time was an open city, so called open city, with no defences. That was a horrific experience for any person. And um, there was no gas, no water for a number of days you couldn't get to work because there was no transport and you had to fend for yourself you could avail of maybe the Red Cross might help you over some I remember Ovaltine tablets we were sick of them for a few days um, soup kitchens appeared you get your bowl of soup and glass of water but then again life goes on supplies came back Transport came back, and after work we went. But it was—it is not an experience I would recommend to anyone, or, or wish to see again. It was—it was brutal, absolutely brutal. And when I when I returned home to Cork, on the twenty-second of December, nineteen forty-eight, I still got my half of my return ticket yet, and I still have my travel permit, and often come across them, and you know reflect on what life was during these periods. I certainly wouldn't recommend war to anyone. There's no winners in war. And the suffering that's imposed upon people is just unbelievable. It's hard, hard times. But then again, when nations are at war, they tend to rally together and fight for whatever cause, whether they believe in the cause or not, a fight. And they'd work and they strive to overcome their en- enemies. But all in all, it was it was an experience of life. But the heart of the people in England during the wartime and the strength of their endeavour was unbelievable. No matter what happened to them, they always put a stiff upper lip in their life. Outside of Irish, I worked on sites with all nationalities, different coloured people, and uh, you get used to them, get used to their names, they get used to you, and after a while, they're just one of the gang. When I came back in 1948, uh, work was still kind of scarce, and it was a, a decision I made not to permanently reside in England, but to go back home to Cork, and um, I made that decision because I was, I was married in 1946 and my wife wasn't anxious to go and live in England, take up her own roots. So we decided that the best thing was for me to come back and so we got on from there. We raised a family of five, one girl and four boys and uh, on reflection uh, I think it was the right decision. I suppose taking up my family roots and leaving the family um, wasn't very, very pleasant. I'd hate to say it was an adventure because it wasn't. It it was too tragic to be an adventure. But um, it was... I'd have much preferred if I hadn't been put in a position to go to England to seek work. The people that emigrated from Cork in the early, well, the early, late 20s, early, early 30s, who were settled with their families, I think at times they didn't look too kindly on the on emigrants the, uh, the that came in to help in the war effort. You could, you could see that kind of resentment. There was no hail fellow well met about him at all. You, you, at times you found complete strangers be really more friendly towards you. Now, I'm not saying everyone behaved that way, but you could you could sense it. It was, it was referred to us one time the hay dogs with their fancy shirts and suits. But however, there was that kind of res- resentment. But all in all, I think people make friends wherever they go, irrespective of, of the circumstances. The experience taught me a lot. First of all, you had to work. You got paid. You had to look after your your, your, your lodgings. You had to look after your laundry. You had to send some money home. And I suppose it was, it was a good experience in home economics. Now, wages weren't all that good. And whatever, having completed your duties, there was very little disposable income there, so you could have a, a little dance on a Saturday night and maybe a pint. But it tortured these things. For example, if you if you were travelling by bus, you had to make sure you had all your bus money for the week and you had to sit down and budget for budget for everything. Going to buy clothes, you had to save up for them. Even though there was a very strict rationing. And there was uh, closed coupons issued. But if you were buying anything, you would have to make sure you save up, save up the money for it and plan for it. And I think that stood us well. Stood me well, anyhow. I suppose my best experience when, when the, the war was over, there were um, two paid holidays. One for the, 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 the war in Europe, what they call the victory, the VE days. And the VJ days, victory in Japan, uh, everyone, everything closed. You had a couple of days off at pay, and everyone seemed to go up and join themselves. And the, 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 um, the English people certainly showed their appreciation for the end of the conflict. I said, for every pub in the length and breadth of the UK was drank dry in those days was really, a degree of, of of lonesomeness, and the Blitz and Bath. That was terrifying. That was absolutely terrifying. And I remember the area warden, organising all the, the manual labour he could put, it, he had at his disposal, helping out and clearing rubble from houses that were knocked until the. The ARP people came along, the experienced people and that kind of thing. That was the worst experience. I don't know why, but, you know, all the things I could forget. I forget all the romances and the different halls we danced in. And I I felt that there was a, a, another challenge facing me. Going home, I was married at the time, trying to uh, pick up employment... As soon as I could, tried to supplement my, the the, the um, my dual money, until I got work. And my first job in Ireland after the war was four pounds seventeen and six a week, and you know that was poor wages in comparison to the money we earned we in England. But again, they were all adjustments. You made personal sacrifices. And then in time, all all the the, 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 the disposal of money days and the tightening up of our belt again, all these would, would go. And once you adjust, you make things go. When I returned, the only thing I found that did not change was that it wasn't easy to find work. But hundreds of other people who... Went to work in wartime Britain, was returning home as well, and it was very, very difficult. And then, if you hadn't any specific skills, for example, like tradespeople who had been, you know, served their time in that, uh, you wouldn't have much or very many economic outlets for yourself. Well, I suppose it's human nature to to, to contemplate and think back, but. It might have been been different. Uh, On the sporting sense, it might have been different. But lots of things happened in Ireland when the war started. Clubs broke up. Inactivity became the order of the day. Everything was scarce. I I suppose things might have been better. I might have enjoyed a lot more of my so-called youthful life, but sacrifices were made and you can't go back in time. And uh, other than that, I suppose the experience, as I said, uh, helped me in in, in making a life back in Cork again. I suppose getting married in 1946. Again, a, a brave decision. For, for someone with no permanent home as such, and knew in his mind that one way or the other it was either settling in England or settling back in Ireland. England might have been the better choice because there was more economic security. And that's the decision lots of people made. And uh, as often said, you can't put an old head on young shoulders I think wartime experience put a lot of experience on young shoulders.
1: It was a terrible shock, but you hadn't even got—you hadn't got time for shock. You you kept running through your head, "What what am I doing here?" You kept saying it, like, "What am I doing here?" Because uh, you knew Monday morning you had no money. You had, that some of the lads, because the Irish people were all uh, in that crowd, like there was a lot of Irish that had jobs different places, and everybody was suggesting where you, I'll get a job Monday morning. And I said, "Well, where can I get a job? I don't know London. I, I can't go out on my own. I was never passed into court in my life." And then it starts coming into you again. You know, ag- again you're saying to yourself, "What am I doing?" You know, I should have stayed in poverty in, England, in Ireland, probably, you know. <laughs> well, luckily, there was a chap there, and God rest him, he's dead now, Pat, Pat Lenny. He was my sister's boyfriend at the time, like, you know. And he knew, he uh, he, he took me with him, anyhow, Monday morning. But it was an experience to go and to get these buses... And he was showing me the way to the site where uh, he, he got me a good start anyhow in life, you know. At least I was going to have, have a wage, and that was the main thing, because I had to get digs on my own. I was only in the house for a few days. They got me a room, for a shared in a room for a few days. And uh, that was the start. I was on a building site digging ditches. It was the only thing. I didn't have the time to look around, so it was money. I mean, if you were in Ireland at the time, you could, you could take a while and look at a job and look at this and look at Willie's. But not over there, because you couldn't go around the corner to your mother for a bit of bread. So you had to get money. That's what the Irish people told me. You must start Monday morning, straight into it. But it was an experience that first day and then the second day, because he went on another job and I'm on my own. And to get to this job, I had to have three buses. Just imagine London I'm getting three buses. You know, it was an experience. It really does. It makes you grow up very quick. In three days, you're, you're from a boy to a man. Because you're on your own, really. Although you have sisters there, they are looking after themselves. They are working, too. So you're, you're expected to get out and get your own money at a time, which gives you a good boost in life after a while, like, you know. It was very lonely. Because sometimes you didn't see any. When you come home at night time, you were too tired. You were, you were home about 7 o'clock at night after travelling all the way for miles and miles, you know, in three buses. And sometimes I didn't see my sisters, because they were at work, probably, working out, shift work or something like that. And it did become very lonely. The only loneliness that you could take away then was Sunday at Mass, where you met a lot of Irish. And always people were saying, there's a better job here, there's a better job there. Come," But you're afraid to leave. Although you didn't like the job, you're afraid, well, at least you're getting something of a Friday. You're getting a a paycheck and you couldn't afford to leave. So I had to stay in the job for a a, a decent few months even before I I could attempt to move away. You couldn't relax for a minute because of work. Because at that time then I was in digs on my own. And the landlady put a hand out on Friday. You could never say, well, I was this and that, you know, you're out. So that was the first thing that was on your mind was money and to stay at the job that you were in, to get that money, although again you paid all everything and for your food and everything. You had nothing left Monday morning in your bus fare. And then you had to count up that to make sure that you had enough bus fare to last Friday morning to get you to the site. Well lucky i I did meet a fella in the digs. As a matter of fact, he's from Chapel Lizard, and we got on very well together. He, he was in a restaurant, Kearns was his name. He was uh, related to another fellow that I knew, like you know, and uh, I got on very well with him, and he was a, he was a chef in a, in a cafe at the time, like you know, but the only time th- the only way I could sp- he used to walk down on the afternoons in this cafe. So when I come home, I'd have a little letter there, say, come out to the calf. I used to go out to him and he'd have a meal for me. <laughs> which was nice, half priced meal. But he he was my friend. So I did make friends. But if it's Sunday morning, then you see you know, the orish was all the same, like that they all had their own worries. And although they could talk to you Sunday morning, they could advise you on different jobs, they had worries themselves. Like they get that wage for Friday for landladies and food. And that's all you're worried about. They have that money. You couldn't get the food that you wanted to get. You had to go that what was on the menu that night. Mostly was tomatoes. There was no meat. And you might be left with no, nothing, only potatoes, whatever was in the flat. You had to cook that yourself. At least you learned how to look after yourself, but it was very, very hard. I mean, you had the money on the table, and you count out so much for tomorrow... It doesn't matter what, you wouldn't, went out, you, you'd never go over your budget. You couldn't, because come Friday morning, there was nobody around the corner that you could uh, put your hand out and say for a loan, because people were, were all strangers. And it, it was difficult at that time. The weekends were great, Saturday night especially, because uh, there was a brother-in-law of mine, intended brother-in-law of mine, he was a carry man. Paddy Lenny, nice, table nice chap, he used to play the accordion down in the church hall and had a band there, so you could go there at least for the three hours Saturday night, you could socialise and forget about all your troubles, and that hall was lovely a Saturday night, everybody looked forward to it, because there were always new friends there, and again, the, the talk was always work, where are you working, what have you got, how much money, well, here's another, if you want to go here now, I'll put a word in for you. They, they always looked after each other. And uh, it was a good thing, it was a good point, like, you know, your church hall, you made friends and got information about work and jobs and everything else. Well, I had many bad experiences. You do. Everybody does, really. But my worst experience, and I think a lot more, too, is when, is when your parents, one of your parents die. And that happened in 1956. My father died. I knew he was dying, but when he came, then it was a terrible shock. I think it was came on a uh, Saturday or something like that one the one weekend uh, weekends and I got a telephone call and I had to scramble off some get money because, uh, as I say, I was married, I had a family at that time, and get on the boat and go home for the funeral and that was a sad occasion like but then after coming back then after having just three days there, I was just got off the boat, reached my digs where my flat where I was, I got a telephone call, my mother was after dropping dead all in six days. For the first say year, I always craved that I was gonna pack it all in. You know, I couldn't stick the loneliness because where I was in Kamic Park and Blue Bell, we had a football team there. Everybody knew each other. No matter if you were going to the pictures or not, every night was something different. And you might have a few shillings to go to the pictures or sit around the corners. So you missed that. But I think after the time, you become and say, well, I shouldn't have to leave. Li- I have to leave, you know what I mean? There should have been something there for me. And I, I was disappointed with that. I was annoyed with that, really, that I had to leave the place that I liked. And I was having in this job in the building site, so putting down water mains or something. And I never got my tax done. Because I was told by one Irishman, now leave your tax there till you want to. Pay your norm of whatever it was, 30 odd percent or something. And I did that and then come December I was after applying for a, a ticket home. Me and me and concerns. And I think then uh, one Friday I was after getting all the back money, which was £30 or something. I think that, wa- that was the greatest thing to have thirty pound and coming home to Ireland. And it, it was lovely, and I mean to go to Houston that night, Friday night. I always remember it like. And you're you're on your way home, and I'm only getting a single ticket this time. I, I could only afford it because I said I wasn't coming back. To be quite honest, I said I wasn't coming back. Like you know, I even said to the landlady I wouldn't be back. Like you know, but that was the greatest thing in my life. You know. To, to get the, from Hollyhead to Dun in the bow, although it was the roughest crossing we ever had everybody was like sick but that, that was the nicest time, I always remember it you know I spent a, about 25 years in England although I liked England very much I always had a, an inkling to come back to Ireland but it took a long time, it took me 30 years nearly that was twenty nine and a half years to get to make it to make it to me and then I, I really made it. And I think that was great. But it was a struggle for the twenty nine years, especially when you get married and then you have a family. My God it is, you know what I mean? And it was the worst period in England, you know, they hadn't their inflation was running wild and everything else. I never had as much luck as the time when I come back. I only come back for a visit. I and cam- I brought my car back. I, went, I drove to Hollyhead to save money. Brought my car back. And it was, a, it was a bad year. It was January. It was a bad year in England on the, on the building sites because it was frost and snow and it was all closed. So I said, I had a few pounds. I said, I'll try it. My wife stayed there with the family. And I went to the mother-in-law in Inchicore. And I think from that day, I had the best of luck I ever had in my life. Everything went right for me. I took the car, went out to Kildare, went out to Nace, looking at property, and I had no money. <laughs> this was the... It was really, I could get money, all right. And I went as far as Kildare, and there I went into an agent, and he showed me a house that I liked. And on, when I come back to the agent after looking at it, I bought it. And when I rang my wife and told her, she went mad. <laughs> but I knew Kildare... That I'd like. I liked the town. And even the agent said, if you take the house, I'll get your job. Because I was a painter, a house painter, and he promised me a job in getting the house. And from that on, I had the best of luck. And I've never torn back since, really. My family, only my wife and I came first. And Paul and John stayed, stayed behind. John was at college at the time. Paul stayed with his aunt. And it was after that. I think that broke up the family because they had no intentions of coming. They, they, They were often here on holidays, but that was all right. Like, John was well in. He was at college. Paul was with his aunt, and he was working. And they said that they just couldn't come. They couldn't change the way. They liked Ireland, but they could not change it. And that was the start then. Mary and I had to come here on our own. And even at that time, then we had to decide: will we go back? We still had the house in England, and we made the decision: no, oh, we we'll get on better here.
2: While I was doing the research for my book, On Unconsidered People*, I tried to approach the subject without any agenda. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to find. The only thing that motivated me was that I felt there was a story of an entire generation here which needed to be told. And what I tried to do was to do something which would simply give something of the texture of ordinary lives of people in the 1950s who were forced to emigrate. I think that's one thing we need to remember, that these people left not out of choice for the most part, but driven by an economic imperative. And one of the things which I discovered in speaking to people was that nobody intended to stay. What people had hoped to do was to go to London or Coventry or Birmingham or Manchester to make some money for a couple of years and to come home. Now, if I tell you that all of the people that I spoke to have now spent in excess of 50 years in London, you'll understand that for a lot of people, that wasn't the reality. Staying on was actually what happened by default rather than through choice. And given the fact that they were forced to leave and that they had to make the best of their new circumstances, um, there were some, I suppose, some experiences which were common um, to a lot of the stories, which I wouldn't have expected. For example... Although there are stories, and and true stories, of discrimination, for example, against the Irish uh, in London in the 1950s, there was also, on an individual level, an enormous amount of kindness shown towards Irish immigrants. And many of the men that I spoke to in particular would say that they were delighted when they got an English foreman, for example, if they were working on the buildings, as a lot of Irish men did, because it was the Irish who were hardest on their own. And in terms of the workplace, and often indeed in terms of accommodation, because when the Irish moved up, they too bought big houses in Kilburn and Cricklewood and the centres where the Irish tended to congregate, and they became landlords and landladies themselves. And unfortunately, fellow feeling for other Irish men and women was not part of that transaction. Um, Other things which I found which were also interesting was, for example, once people were in the workforce they found that being Irish, or indeed being Catholic, because many of them had fears around this, that being Irish or being Catholic did not, in fact, impede their progress, if you like, in the workplace. So although the, the, the tales which are often told of discrimination, and at most it absolutely was there, there was the other side to that coin as well, which showed that Irish people actually made much more progress financially and in terms of their jobs than they would have done had they stayed at home a lot of people felt that the attitude towards them when they returned from the UK was not what they would have hoped or would have expected. Now, when you keep in mind that these people sent their 10 shilling notes and their pound notes home on a weekly basis and kept the economy going, I mean, one of the most uh, surprising figures for me was to learn that in 1961, the entire cost of providing education in the Irish state was 14 million pounds. In that year similarly the returns, the emigrant remittances as they were called amounted to 13.5 million. So you had all of these Irish people living in London and in Manchester and all over the UK literally keeping the economy of this country afloat. These were people who struggled to keep their jobs, to bring up their families, to do all of the things which we associate with ordinary life. And to be expected then uh, to be wealthy to show the trappings of of success when they came home on holiday was a very, very difficult thing to cope with because often they were struggling the same as everybody else. They also found that if they returned and tried to settle here, that that begrudgery uh, was shown towards them in the fact that they were regarded as outsiders. And again, these were the people who kept the rural economies particularly afloat for decades And to arrive back into your own home community and to be regarded as an outsider was very hurtful. Then you'd have children where the the issues are even more complex. Second-generation Irish have a huge amount of conflict uh, around identity, for example. And this came up both in conversations with their parents and with second-generation Irish themselves. They feel they're neither English nor Irish In many ways, although the Irish uh, community is the largest ethnic group in the UK, it's not actually recorded as such. And some researchers have suggested that because uh, Irish people were white and spoke English, that in many ways they disappeared into the larger community and that their needs as a separate ethnic group in fact were not recognised. So issues around identity, around reception at home, either whether you were here on holiday or whether you came back to settle. And issues regarding Catholicism. I mean, for the, for most people, their faith was a very, very important part of their lives. For others, not so much. But whether it was or it wasn't, it had an impact um, because the church was... In in the 1950s in particular, the church would have been the centre around which many people based their social life. And, I mean, back in the 1950s, places like the Camden Irish Centre, for example, uh, that would have been another focal point for the Irish community in London. Um, The Camden Irish Centre in those days spent its time introducing people to each other, organising dances, organising social events, making sure that people weren't lonely. Uh, It's interesting to note that its role has changed completely. And today, it spends most of its time trying to sort out the social welfare entitlements of unfortunate men who spent all of their lives working on building sites and have discovered in the evening of their lives that they have been robbed blind by the companies for which they worked. Many of these men, for example, it it was a, a kind of a common theme, because they weren't going to stay, and because there was a sort of a fundamental distrust, if you like, of the of the British state, they decided to stay on the margins in, in in terms of not registering with banks or building societies or any kind of institution that might be able to identify them. And so for the most part, these men would have got paid in cash or by cheque. But the cheque came with a price. You had to cash it in a pub. And the practice was that people would meet in the pub straight after work. Um, they would hand in their cheque, which would be cashed for them, but it would be handed back at the end of the night, minus the amount of drink money, if you like, which had been spent. And this was not a choice. This was how the building operated. And if you didn't roll along with it, you simply didn't work the following day. And that whole culture of being around a pub um. Obviously, it, um, it was a very, very exploitative one. And you had no choice. I mean, if you, were, if you were afraid of what might happen, of the repercussions of being within the system, then this was the alternative system to which you had to subscribe. And either way, you came out worse. And in terms of the issues, again, which, which people brought up to discuss with me, the amount of uh, alcoholism, among young men in particular, was a serious cause for concern. And I found it very interesting because it's often a stereotype. If you look at the plays which came out of that period, or even later of the 70s, Kings of the Kilburn High Road, for example, where, again, this, this whole pub culture uh, is explored, if you like, and also the myth and the fantasy about returning to the homeland. But it, it, came, it became very, very clear to me, having spoken to a wide range of people, that they understood that, in fact, this alcoholism did not arrive with these young men off the boat in Hollyhead. This developed as a response to the unbearable loneliness and the incredibly difficult working conditions which most of them had to endure. And research in the British Medical Journal actually sustains that point of view, that this was something which developed as a response not to feed in, if you like, to the stereotype of the drunken paddy, which was one of the things that these men had to endure, if you like, that label. Um, But it was something which developed in response to conditions which were unendurable. And you now have people, many, many people, elderly men in particular, who are surviving very much on the margins, afraid to come home, because they don't know where home is anymore, unable to survive where they are, and feeling, if you like, doubly abandoned, both by the country, which they literally changed the face of during the 1950s, and the country they left. Um, Most people at one stage, and in fact perhaps for all of their lives, looked forward to coming home. For people who haven't been home for 20 years or so, and there are many, all they hear is, if you like, the, the things which are happening in Ireland, which bear an uncomfortable resemblance to the things which are happening in England, which they don't like. For example, um, they hear a lot about the, the drug culture in Ireland, um, the prevalence of young male suicide, for example is something which a lot of parents, because all of these people are parents and grandparents, is something which they feel very, very concerned about. They wonder what is the change in Irish society that has brought all of this about. So coming home is something which is fraught for them with a great deal of difficulty. And I found it very poignant, if you like, that the myth which had sustained them for over 50 years, that when they get the opportunity to transfer that dream into reality. They actually come back and find something that's very, very different. And there are, there, are just, there are so many stories of people who wait until they have retired, who have bought their plot of land, who have built their bungalow, or who have come home to the family home after 50 or 60 years. And in many cases, and I don't know why, but in many cases, these people have died within a short time of returning home. And it's not just that they were very, very elderly, although, of course, some of them were. I mean, I I just wonder about the impact of such a great disillusionment at the end of your life, having looked forward to something for so long, and then to find that it didn't live up to the reality. And again, one of the sad things which I found was that so many people had lived their lives, if you like, in the future tense, that always this dream of coming home was what overshadowed everything else. And they regarded themselves, if you like, as temporary while they lived in London. That this was only a temporary life. That real life would begin once they came home again. And sadly, if they managed that physically, if they did manage to come home, the life to which they had looked forward was not actually here.
1: I think it's a great experience to go away. But at the time, I didn't think it was a good experience. I was really bitter. But now... I think uh, I, the experience that I got it stands me here and I enjoy it better because I, I, you know, I know what it is to be in England and to be a, an immigrant you know what I mean? That pe- what people suffer like and go through when they go away.
0: And I'm glad I got married early. I got married young and uh, I have no regrets for that. I'll be 57 years married now, next month and uh, It doesn't seem like 57 years. It doesn't feel at all. All Other than there were good days and bad days and, you know, probably blessed with a very healthy family and with the ups and downs and that, they've all done reasonably well. We're all still alive, thank God. And it's nearing the end of a chapter.